what we're discovering is that this approach allows you to really engineer cells in a way that you would engineer, let's say, a car. And it allows you to create cell types that don't exist either. So you can combine programs from different cell types. So really, we're tapping in this software called biology to create and recreate cell types that are useful. Hey, Ram, how's it going? It's going. We're coming off of Labor Day weekend, which was a four-day weekend. I mean, five-day weekend for us because we also had Thursday off, sort of. And it was so much fun. But when you have a toddler and you're with them for five days, you almost need a vacation from the vacation. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around, okay, today's Tuesday. So give me a minute, everyone. I'm trying to get up to speed. But how about you, Carl? How was your Labor Day weekend? So we've now entered the season of the grind, is what it's called, the return to work after the long summer. It was a pretty eventful weekend. Chris and I celebrated our anniversary. We went to the beach, actually, yesterday on Labor Day. We went very early to Jacob Reese Park. There were not a lot of people there, but as the day got closer to noon, it got very crowded. We tend to go to the beach very early and only go for a very short period of time. It's always a lot of fun. The tide was coming up. And yeah, it was interesting to see how many people came out, even though it was kind of rainy yesterday, at least at the beginning of the mm. day. But I think that was the highlight, was just hanging out, doing some reading, puttering. My parents are going to be here on Saturday, getting ready for their visit. It was good. But there's been a lot of biotech in the news. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? What's been going on? I know you've been sending me links, texting me links, and my mind was on vacation mode, so I couldn't absorb it all. But I'm ready to hear it. Tell me, Carl, what's going on? I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I, I, Do not. I, I never stop vacation or not. So there were two big things. One was Lex Friedman did a long podcast with Neri Oxman. Neri was the head of the material sciences division at the Media Lab at MIT has a team that's done some very interesting work that's at the intersection of design, synthetic biology, engineering, manufacturing, and has done some very, very interesting art projects. She just started a company here in New York City. And we know a lot of people that have applied to that company don't know anybody that's been hired there yet. But Lex Friedman's podcast is always super compelling. And that one in particular is of interest for anybody listening to this podcast. The other thing was that our friends at Pivot, or we're not friends with them, but we are big fans, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, had someone call in talking about their career in biotech and Kara and Scott gave a very biopharma-centric answer. And I think we need to let them know, whether it's on Twitter or via their hotline, that they've missed the bigger picture in terms of what's happening with biotechnology. Scott did yeah. mention that biotech stocks are the most volatile stocks being traded, which is true, but they completely missed really the revolution that's happening across biotechnology. And I'm interested in that more because we're going to have an upcoming episode where you talk to Michael Spencer who's an author who addresses this. Yeah. I mean, I listened to that part of it. I mean, I love the Pivot podcast. Karen and Scott are great. I really did appreciate how Scott, when he was responding to that listener's inquiry into biotechnology and their career, he did spend a lot of time acknowledging that person, saying that having a PhD, he said, congratulations to you and your family for supporting you and giving you the space to go very deep into biotechnology and thinking about a career. He really acknowledged that it does take a lot of work because this person was studying biomedical sciences at this time. It does take a lot of knowledge to really go deep into it. And he said that being able to have that type of experience, that person doesn't have to worry about a career. They will always find some place to have a job and do something meaningful when it comes to human health. So I, I thought that that was great, that that's the perspective he took for the response to that person's question, because it did seem like Scott and Kara just didn't have the breadth of industry insight that we have, which, hey, Kara and Scott, if you want us to come on or if you want to take some of our episodes and put it on your podcast, we could do an episode swap. We're happy to do that. Have your people call our people and we'll... Right. <laughs> We'll make it happen. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's worth acknowledging Scott's answer because it was very thoughtful. And he did make the point that this person was going to have a successful career no matter what they did and that they would be having very interesting conversations with people, which is what we do here on Grow Everything. But as I said, they did miss the bigger picture of all the other places where biotech is being applied, which is why we're here. 
There was some other news, which I think we should just mention. Big news was that Ginkgo Bioworks signed a deal with Google. And we see that as being very positive. I think one of the reasons why I fell in love with synthetic biology was this idea of being able to program biology the way you would program a computer and having Google involved with Ginkgo. And Ginkgo has a very large genetic code base will accelerate the utility of that code base and make it easier for people to be able to design with biology. So I'm very excited about that collaboration and I'm expecting really big things to come from it. Yeah, it looks like they're focusing on the Google Cloud part of Google to support Ginkgo. It's a lot of data. I mean, 2 billion protein sequences. That's what they have in their database and Ginkgo's database. They have a lot of data that they need to be able to access via the cloud in order to really have some shared insights with their collaborators. They have Ginkgo has a lot of collaborators. I saw Jason Kelly. He's a CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks on his LinkedIn. Almost like every day he's announcing a collaboration. I didn't see this one on his LinkedIn, which is a big one. I'm surprised I missed it. But I think it's going to be really important that they leverage the Google Cloud and it looks like some other Google products. My good friend, Lorena Crowley, works at Google Cloud. So hi, Lorena, if you're hearing this, I have to ask her, try to get some inside intel into what's going on. Although she is on maternity leave for eight months. Thank you, Google. for allowing that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. 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 But I think it's so fascinating. I think this is a big step for Ginkgo to try to really focus on automating a lot of their design and development. Jason does always say they are the AWS of synthetic biology. And this sounds like the step that is required. My only hesitation is there's a pro and a con working with these big companies when it comes to collaborating. Sometimes things go beautifully. Sometimes things just don't happen. They fall flat. So I really hope things work beautifully for Ginkgo and Google. We know that Amazon and JP Morgan, they try to create a healthcare company and that all went to crap. But I think Ginkgo is still nimble enough to be able to navigate this and really lead the collaboration because there definitely needs to be a leader. And of course, Ginkgo will be leading this when it comes to synthetic biology and biotechnology. Yeah, I think it's very exciting. I mean, there are virtual biotech companies already, virtual therapeutics companies, but being able to have access to a tool set that we can call chat DNA that allows us to design organisms that produce a product and does it virtually before we go into the physical world will have a lot of impact and is revolutionary, actually. Speaking of going into the real world, the other piece of news that I wanted to mention because I thought it was very significant was and. Thea demonstrated full-scale fermentation. They did a full-scale fermentation run. So for listeners who don't know who Anthea is, Anthea is a company that is focused on creating, they're called APIs, which is active pharmaceutical ingredients. By being able to make these active pharmaceutical ingredients through fermentation, you can localize production of drug manufacturing. Many APIs are produced all over the world. India and China are the biggest producers of APIs. Most of them are produced chemically, and many of them are used in drugs that are generic, so there's not a lot of value for big companies to make these drugs. As a result, we have drug shortages all the time, and these drug shortages can be quite acute. Many years ago, I worked with a not-for-profit called Civica Rx that had put together a consortium of hospitals to develop the buying power to ensure the hospitals would not be out of any of their essential medicines. And if you do a search, you'll find that there are constantly somewhere between 20 and 100 drugs in shortage at any given time. So Anthea being able to do full-scale fermentation, a full-scale fermentation run, I think it's on the 100,000 liter scale, just demonstrates that their technology to produce APIs is going to work. And I thought it was a big, huge vote of confidence, not just for Anthea, but also for the synthetic biology industry. As I said, it will allow for the localization of drug production and also will work on this drug shortage issue. That's so fascinating. I mean, are there any competitors to Anthea? Are they the first company to do this? I think they're the first to take this approach. I'm sure that there are others that are that we haven't heard of. I met Christina Smolke, the founder president at SynBioBeta. We've been kind of in the same circles for a while and had a nice conversation with her about what they're doing. And I'm very, very impressed with the progress that they've been able to make. 
It's incredible. The localization, the securing our supply chains is super important from a political perspective, obviously for an environmental perspective, if you don't have to ship things anywhere and you can make things as local as possible. And even hyper-local, I mean, you know me, I'm always thinking of, well, what's the 10-year vision? Can we do a fermentation run in our neighborhood to make drugs for people? And can we make it super micro and available to be able to make it in space? I mean, that's the biggest thing. Like, to what end are we doing this? And I right. think that Anthea, they were able to plant a flag in the sand in terms of getting this far into their full-scale fermentation run. And that's so exciting. So I'm glad to see that it's happening now. Before we went on vacation, you went to an event in New York City, Iran. Why don't you describe the event and then we'll get into our interview. Yes, yes. I went to the Merck Digital Sciences Studio, which is an accelerated program based here in New York City. And they focus on early stage biotech startups. They they provide some money, but they also provide lots of expertise when it comes to both the science and business aspects of building a biotech company. There were about 12 companies that graduated through this program, all touching drug development in some aspect. So whether it's improving workflows for pharmaceutical companies, where the founders have worked in the pharma industry for years, they saw a lot of inefficiencies and knew what the solutions were. So they ended up building a complete workflow from drug design to marketing in just one platform, which is super valuable for companies where things can be fragmented, where innovation happens in isolated departments and you have to be able to piece them all together to companies that are looking at drug interactions with their microbiome. Something that I've been thinking about a lot too is that you ingest a drug, it goes into your stomach and then you have stomach acid. But what did we learn from Stephanie Culler when we interviewed her on this podcast? There's like 400 some species of microbes in our stomach. So they're also ingesting the drug when it goes into our stomach. I'm sure what happens with those interactions? Why do they, why do some interactions, why are they more effective than others? Maybe it's due to their microbiome. So I thought that was a very interesting company that's exploring this aspect. Also, I mean, and also a lot of these people that are part of Merck Digital Sciences Studio, we get to see regularly because some of them are based here in New York City. One company is developing a cell and gene therapy platform. Nina, our friend Nina, is building this company and being able to use generative AI to crawl all the literature that's recent on cell and gene therapy development, whether it's early stage design to protein development. When she was doing this demo on the demo day, it was just almost like a chatbot where she's asking questions regarding cell and gene therapy and it's spitting out answers. And I was very impressed that they were able to not only take all the deep sciences and software development, but even have a UX that was user-friendly, like a user experience, a design. They were able to wrap all of this super high-end tech into a very simplified platform. I thought it was very impressive. So a lot coming out, a lot of cell and gene therapy. I know you know some of these companies, Carl. We've been paying close attention to the cell and gene therapy space for a number of years. I've written a fair amount for cell and gene therapy companies, including things on the logistics of cell and gene therapy, because it is a complicated space. And I think that that's the perfect segue into our interview today, because we are talking to a pioneer in cell and gene therapy. We're going to be talking to Mark Cotter, the founder and CEO of BitBio. And BitBio is a synthetic biology company that's developing human cells for research, drug discovery, and cell therapy. So in other words, they're not only developing the cells that researchers can use to expand on and develop cell therapies, but they also are putting cell therapies into the pipeline. I've seen Mark speak many times at Symbiobeta. He and I got to know each other a little bit better last year in London at Symbiobeta's Thought Leadership Workshop. And then you and I had a long conversation with him this year at Symbiobeta. So it's a thrill to bring Mark onto the podcast to interview him not only about BitBio and cell therapy, but also about some of the other companies he's working on. So with that, let's just start the interview. Hi, Mark. It's so good to see you. We're very excited to have this conversation with you. How's your day going? Thank you so much, Carl. It's good. It's a pleasure to be on that podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Why don't we start at the beginning and talk about your background? I didn't know this, but in doing our research on you, I learned that you're actually trained as a neurosurgeon and you specialize in neurosurgery and spinal surgery with an emphasis on regenerative medicine. How do you make the leap from neurosurgeon to serial biotech entrepreneur? One of the things that you get exposed to as a neurosurgeon is your inability to help. 
There's a lot of things that we can do for the patient group that I'm most interested in, which are spinal injury patients. So we can use rods and screws to put their spine back together. But when it comes to neurological deficits, which is the essence of a spinal cord injury, we haven't really made a lot of progress. We can now manage them on intensive care units. There's rehabilitation, but there's really nothing that allows me to give back the use of the hands or the ability to walk to a patient that has a severe spinal cord injury. And that's the reason why very early, actually already as a student, I became very interested in the research side of medicine. And in particular, the then dormant field of regenerative medicine. And I had this naive idea when I started my faculty job in Cambridge to create cell therapies for spinal cord injuries. And the reason why I thought this would be a good idea was because cells, unlike traditional drugs like small molecules or biologics have two superpowers. First, they can replace lost cells. Secondly, they can interact with the environment so they can actively modulate the environment. So that was sort of the journey. It's always a little bit more complex than you think. It requires a lot more capital than you think. Uh, And at some point, I was lucky enough to be able to make the transition into the biotech world where at least these resources are available. You had quite the academic journey and the biotech journey as well. You found some very fundamental information when you're looking at cells. As a stem cell biologist, you are the founder of mylopathy.org, BitBio, Meetable, ClockBio. Can you give us a little idea of what those are and how do you balance it all? Sure. I'll start with myelopathy.org, which is a patient community or charity. And this is really the main patient population that I serve. As a neurosurgeon, this is a different spinal cord injury than most people will know. So that's not because of a motorcycle injury or something like that. This is wear and tear changes in the neck, compressing the spinal cord, causing slow motion spinal cord injury. And this is a very, very common condition, but there is no representation. I'm not sure whether you've ever heard of this disease, myelopathy. It's the bread and butter of a neurosurgeon. And what I found is that these patients are very isolated. They weren't very connected at all. There has been very little research. On the other hand, it's the perfect paradigm to develop regenerative treatments because of the homogeneity of the injury, which is very different from a traumatic spinal cord injury. I essentially tried to reach out to patients over the internet in order to get some feedback on a research project that I wanted to conduct, a clinical trial. The response was overwhelming. And now this community around the the website has incorporated as the charity that more than 4,000 patient members involved. And it's been a tremendous learning opportunity for me. Patients know much better what they require. It also helps people that are interested in that field to align their research to their needs. So this is how myelopathy.org happened. Going back to the other three companies, really the basic question in my lab was how do we create cells for therapeutic use cases? And in particular, I wanted a brain cell called oligodendrocyte precursor cells, which I thought would be a good agent in order to create these cells because you can't take them from donors. You have to ideally manufacture them. Uh, I delved into the world of stem cells. So I was very lucky. I was recruited to the beginning of the Stem Cell Institute in Cambridge, which was set up by Roger Peterson. I was able to learn very early techniques that enabled to coax stem cells into particular cell types. The cell type that I wanted had a very, very long differentiation protocol. It was about 170 days. And after the end of the 170-day period, you never knew whether you had cells or not because it was very inconsistent. And the whole thing wasn't very scalable either. Not a good proposition for a PhD candidate that has three years to complete a PhD. That essentially means four experiments and then write up. So we looked into alternatives. And the time was just ripe for disruption. What happened in 2006-7, just a few years before I took up my position, was that Yamanaka showed the world that you can create stem cells from skin cells by reprogramming them with transcription factors. Inspired by this, of course, technology won the Nobel Prize in 2006. Transcription factor is a protein that controls the rate of genetic information being converted from DNA to RNA. There are all sorts of proteins that turn genes on and off, and they do so by binding to DNA in the cell and giving it the instructions to either stay silent or turn into 
mRNA. Those are transcription factors. 2012, Marius Wernick and another group of scientists tried to see whether a similar paradigm where you can use genes and switch them on in order to create new cell types can be used to create brain cells. So that was successful. And of course, now we're talking synthetic biology. It's no longer traditional stem cell biology. So we hopped on that bandwagon and got very deep into this, found a program that allows you to create these oligodendrocyte precursor cells, but at the same time also encountered difficulties and challenges that weren't yet clear, a phenomenon called gene silencing, that essentially stem cells don't want to change into other cell types, and they have an immune system that prevents the activation of genetic programs that are different. We were able to find a way of tricking these stem cells to accept new genetic programs, and that really opened up a platform which now forms the foundation for most of the startups. In essence, the startups that I have look at the basic programs of biology. And one basic program is what I would call the cell identity program, i.e. what makes a cell a cell and what dictates its function. And this is determined by what we can call a transcription factor code. And then there's another program that we all are suffering, which is called the aging program. And this seems to be an epigenetic program. So I was quite interested in that aspect as well. First of all, theoretically, it's very interesting, but also myelopathy is probably an age in influenced or maybe an age-determined condition. So this general interest in biology, but with a different mindset, with a software mindset, gave me the opportunity to identify some novel ground truths, so to speak, and enabled us to create technology that these startups are now using. Mark, I'd love to go into detail on them, but let's focus on BitBio, since that seems to be the one that you've, I would say, have spent the most time on, and it's how I know you the most. It sounds like you went from being a neurosurgeon to being able to cultivate these stem cells and turning them into interesting cells. Is that what the inspiration for BitBio was? What is BitBio? BitBio is really this company that focuses on the question, what makes a cell a cell? What cell identity? And why is that an important question? Just think about it. Cells are the building blocks of life. Every cell is different in terms of its function. Brain cell different from a skin cell. Despite having the same set of genes, the DNA is the same. So the program that is active differs from one cell type to another cell type. And that's really the software approach that we've developed. What I said at the early stages of BitBio, which sounded a bit crazy then, was we want to create a company that is able to recreate every human cell type. Every human cell type teaches you something about human biology. Disease strikes at the cellular level. So if you have disease models that are human, you can learn something about human diseases and you can obviously also create better therapies. Uh, and we can talk about this translation gap. And finally, of course, you need human cells to create therapeutics. So cell therapies obviously need to be based on human cells. That was the big dream of stem cells, the big dream of regenerative medicine, which hasn't really come to fruition yet because of technical challenges. And I think BitBio has a solution to some of these technical problems. Yes, it's my focus. It's really the most exciting thing that I've been able to do so far. Who ends up being the customers? It seems like any therapeutics company that is potentially needing human cells to test a medicine would be customers. But then on the therapeutic side, how do you decide what targets to go after if you're able to program any kind of human cell? It's an interesting question. Obviously, on the cell therapy side, you can look at risk categories. And the biggest risk if you develop a clinical therapy is, of course, what I would call the clinical risk. You may have the perfect cell, but does the cell actually function? And has it got therapeutic effects? How do you square that? You can look at cell therapies that have been successful in a clinical setting. And there have been quite a few studies now using a huge variety of different cell types. There have been many, many trans transplants for spinal cord injury. My initial inspiration, liver cells have been transplanted, immune cells have been transplanted with transformational impact on cancer care, for example. We already have CAR T cells now in the clinic as approved products. And these are immune cells that have been engineered to detect certain kinds of blood cancers. And they can cure a late stage, end stage blood cancers, which didn't have a cure before. So it's really transformational what these cell therapy can do. So clinical risk is the first category. Technical risk would be the second category we're looking at. Is the cell type scalable, consistent? Can we 
manufacture it? Does it have the function? And then, of course, all the other execution risks, do we have the expertise, etc. Not every expertise obviously can be in-house. Therefore, I'm very excited. Recently, we announced a partnership with Bayer or Blue Rock, their cell therapy unit, to develop a new cell type for the treatment of autoimmune diseases. So BitBio on the cell therapy side would like to become what you call the base layer, the source of human cells that others can take on and develop their clinical products around. But of course, in order to become that base layer, you also have to demonstrate clinical validity of the cells. And therefore, we're taking a few cell types into the clinic, interface one and maybe beyond as internal programs. On the other hand, as you just said, yes, lots of different pharma companies and big pharma, biotechs, academics have started to buy our research-grade products. And the reason why I think this is quite important is if you look at drug discovery, when I look at small molecules and biologics, there's a huge attrition happening between concept and final product. About 90% plus of drugs fail. One big part is what's called the translation gap. At the beginning of a drug discovery process, which often involves high throughput screening for compounds and molecules, non-human cells and also cancer cells and animal models are used. And the problem is that these don't translate very well into the clinic. I'll give you an example. We've not been very good creating drugs for Alzheimer's. We've now got some which delay the condition a little bit. And I think that's very positive, but it's been hard and it's been a lot of effort spent there. And when you look at Alzheimer, one of the characteristics is that this is really a human condition. Animals don't get that. So when scientists use mice to develop a drug, they have to genetically modify the mice so that they get a disease that looks like Alzheimer's. And then they run a very efficient drug discovery process. They find a drug, they take it into the clinic. And there we often learn that what we have produced in the mouse is a different disease than the human condition. So that's called the translation gap. And that can only be fixed if you take human cells that actually suffer from the condition that you want to treat. And to give you some numbers here, on average, including failures, we spend $2 billion to get a drug into the clinic. If you just double the success rate, you probably shave off half of the costs. So the savings are really important. And we have to get better at translating because we see this massive explosion of medical and biological knowledge. In order to get that into the clinic, we have to become more efficient. So uh, I'm very excited that BitBio plays a role here and provides human cell models to help bridge that gap. Thanks for sharing that. It's very exciting. I think it'll be good to talk a little bit more about, you mentioned the human cell model. Are you yeah. actually providing cells? Is it a software platform model? Help our listeners understand a little bit about what are you developing physically or through software to be able to replace these animal models? I think everyone kind of understands that mice are not humans. I mean, you know, that's very, very complex. Obviously, this is why 90% of drugs are failing. But what is it that BitBio is providing these pharmaceutical companies? So literally at this moment in time, you buy tubes that are frozen and all you need to do is pop them out and put them into your tissue culture and start your testing. And that's easy. So we really try and take out the fear and the difficulty that are associated with cell types. So with stem cell differentiation, and we really just provide more or less the finished product. And you can combine these cells to create co-cultures. Our cells have been integrated into organoid systems, so 3D models, etc. That is the hardware that we're producing. But in order to get to that, we sort of take a software approach. We talked about this at the beginning a little bit, programming. We use a lot of programming language to explain our technological approach. Maybe I give you a little bit of a scope here as well. So traditionally, people have tried to coax stem cells into various different cell types, skin cells, brain cells, heart cells, using a paradigm that's called directed differentiation. And that was modeled on embryonic development. Now, the problem with embryonic development is twofold. First of all, it takes long. It takes about nine months until the baby is born. Secondly, it's a very complex process where cells have to be arranged in a particular manner and cells often sort of go stepwise from a undifferentiated pluripotent stem cell to something that's a bit more differentiated until they reach the final stage. And from a developmental perspective, the worst thing that could happen is if you forgot about a tissue or a cell type. That would cause a severe 
birth defect. So in order to mitigate this, what biology has invented is stochastic principles. Mark mentioned pluripotent stem cells. Pluripotent means many potentials. In other words, these cells have the potential of taking on many forms in the body, including all of the more than 200 different cell types. Embryonic stem cells are pluripotent because they eventually form different cell types that make up our skin, bones, muscle, organ, tissues, everything that makes our body our bodies. There are also induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS cells that are reprogrammed from adult tissues. So when scientists talk about pluripotent stem cells, they mostly mean either embryonic or IPS cells. When Mark refers to stochastic principles, he is talking about processes that seem to happen at random. Stochastic processes are often depicted as mathematical models for random phenomena evolving in time or space, where the outcomes are based upon random probability. Literally, cells make self-fate choices, so choose their trajectory based on stochastic principles. They roll the dice. Overall, in the population, that provides the right mix of cells. But of course, if you base a manufacturing paradigm on stochastic events, multiple of them, then you see it becomes very inconsistent. And that's really what held back the application of stem cells. Long, difficult processes with lots of variability. The reprogramming approach that Yamanaka has pioneered, Marius Wernig, actually all comes back to a string of papers published in the 1980s by Harald Weintraub, is based on a completely different paradigm. Basically, it's much more a software paradigm. Input equals output. Cells in this paradigm are defined by the transcriptional state, which means the genes that are active versus the active subset of genes. We've got 20,000 genes approximately in our DNA. About 10,000 are active in any particular moment in time, but they're different from cell type to cell type. And the control of these different genes is mediated by transcription factors. So if you find the right code of transcription factors, you can activate a new cell type program. That cuts across this difficult sort of long-winded differentiation process and collapses it to a process that is about 10 times faster. But what we also found, and this is the thing that people in my lab discovered, was that if you switch on the program in such a way that the cell can't silence it, can't turn it off, then cells are forced into that new cell type. And what you then have is a very compact manufacturing paradigm. So you can go from stem cell to any cell type in days with a purity that you've never seen before, at the same time with a consistency that actually I never thought would be possible. Early on this year, we showed some data, which I found really surprising. Between different manufacturing runs of our brain cells that are used for research, there wasn't really any difference. We couldn't tell the difference between different batches, which is something that I'm not aware has happened very often in, in biology. And so that's really the sort of the revolution that BitBio is based on. Meetable, the other company, takes exactly the same technology because it's very, very amenable to scale up. Non-human, of course, cells, fat and muscle. That's the ingredient for cultured meat. Now moving into 5,000 liter tanks and they're going to reach price parity, which means kilograms below $10. So you can see this biology behaves very different. It's interesting how just changing the paradigm allows you to circumvent a challenge that really held back the stem cell field for the last decades. That's so interesting. Mark, I kind of want to summarize it to make it clear to our listeners so that they understand. You can start with any kind of stem cell. Is that correct? And then any you, you add any pluripotent stem cell. And does that mean that you guys are also creating the stem cells internally? We have both. We in-house stem cells, but we have the capability, like many others as well, to use Yamanaka reprogramming to create our own stem cells. Right. And then you take, I'm going to say, a computer programming approach where you can take those stem cells, you can add transcription factors, which I would imagine in most cases are going to be proteins or small RNA sequences. Is that correct? In order to switch them on, you really have to engineer them into the DNA, so-called mixed-safe harbor sites. That's really the base layer tech that uh, BitBio has, a technology called OptiX, which allows you to essentially 
hijack the program of a cell and switch on a new program. And that's the magic. Okay, so you take your stem cells, you hijack the genetic code, and based on your knowledge and the program that you've already done, you can make those cells differentiate into any kind of cell that can have multiple uses. So that could be muscle cells, skin cells, hair follicles, whatever it might be. That's right, yes. That is tremendous. And then your customers are both large research organizations, pharmaceutical companies, but then you guys are also developing therapeutics based on your knowledge. And those are entering into the clinic, yeah. We also engage in partnerships because if you think about it, if BitBio focuses on creating multiple cell types, just the financial resources, but also the expertise that is required to create a therapy out of each of these cell types are enormous. We are a platform inherently, and we engage with partners and customers to enable them to create their therapeutic product. I'm curious from a BitBio point of view, what are the therapeutic areas that you guys are either developing therapies for or you're interested in? So we haven't announced our clinical pipeline yet, but we are in the liver space, metabolic space, and immune space. And that's based on clinical data that already exists, but also on the fact that cell therapies, we talked about immune oncology applications, and more recently also autoimmune indications have tremendous benefits for patients. Can it be used for myelopathy? I think there is a use case. It's probably more a neural stem cell that is modified to enhance also endogenous regeneration. But yes, I still hope that at some point in time we'll be able to develop a clinical product for spinal cord injury patients. I just want also want to just make it clear to our listeners, this ability to program cells this way has enabled you to program, for example, muscle and fat cells that can be turned into a meat, which is those are the primary components of any kind of meat that you get from an animal. And as you said, that ability to do it effectively is going to allow you guys to bring the price of cultivated meat way down. This is the meatable product, sorry. I should be clear. Absolutely right. Yeah, so this is non-human, of course, (laughs) and it's done by meatable, but uh, they leverage the scalability of this technology. And the interesting thing was the traditional stem cell technology, it's very challenging to scale up. With this programming approach, it can be very easy to transfer from 2D to 3D to sort of larger tanks. Obviously, there has to be some process development, but we don't see the biological barriers that are sort of common in the other paradigm. Yeah, that's actually, I would love to talk about that a little bit. Carl and I, in our day-to-day, we have been really interested in the cultivated food space, meat space. And Meetable, I actually heard the CEO speak at Sinbai Beta, where I heard you speak too. And he was on a panel with Sci-Fi Foods and Orbillion. Orbillion was also featured on our podcast. And it was really interesting because Orbillion and Sci-Fi Foods, they are using cell lines from existing animals. They just gain biopsies and then cultivating in-house. And then Meetable, the CEO, was talking about the pluripotent stem cells and using that to differentiate meat. What is the advantage of doing it that way? If you can clearly tell us that difference, how is that advantageous from maybe a texture, a taste, and obviously a scalable point of view versus the way that these other companies, the other paradigm is doing it? Yeah, and if I can add to that question, Mark, does using pluripotent stem cells as the source for this meat require the labeling to say that it's a GMO, for example? Okay. So that was a lot of quite a lot of questions compressed in <laughs> That's a big question. That's a big question. So, <laughs> so I'll start with Aram's questions first. What is the advantage? So if you think about cells, specialized cells that you get from a biopsy, they're already stuck in a lineage. They might be an earlier stage of a muscle cell, but they have limited ability to expand, to grow. And that's why these cultured meat companies that are based on this paradigm have to do either two things, go back to an animal to get more sample. They modify the cells and turn them into effectively cancerous cells that have an ability to propagate. That's how you can sort of solve this resourcing of this. The second thing is that you need two cell types, fat cells and muscle cells to really create tasty meat. And interestingly, a huge amount of the flavor is contained in the fat 
It's very difficult to scale up fat cells. So many cultured meat companies are focusing on the muscle cells. Now, if you think about it, a pluripotent stem cell is the origin of all cell types in the body. So in principle, it has the capability to create all different cell types. So that's one advantage, I would say. The second advantage is it's the faster turning over cell that we know in an organism. So it means it grows very fast. And that means you can expand it very well. The challenge with pluripotent stem cells, they're so difficult to handle. So, and we talked about differentiation versus reprogramming. And this is really where the synthetic biology piece, the object technology makes such a difference. With this, you can now create fat cells and muscle cells, I think, within less than seven days, which is extraordinary. That means you can grow your steak in seven days or your mints. And I think that's the superpower. The other thing, uh, and I think Meetup at some point has used it as a slogan, one cell to feed the world. And that's the other sort of astonishing thing about stem cells. They are eternally young and they grow so well that you can create an entire manufacturing platform based on a single cell as a start. Point. I think those are the two really standout opportunities that I see with a prepotent stem cell approach. Now, labeling the GMO, that is a political discussion, isn't it? As much as a regulatory discussion. There's a lot of pushback from traditional meat producers against cultured meat, which is understandable in some point. Then my gut feeling is there won't be a replacement. There will be um, a differentiation of the market. Personally, I would hope that, and certainly that's what I'm seeing, high quality organic meat producers, they won't see cultured meat as a competition. I don't think anyone can compete with an extremely well-raised, well-kept meat source. Think about the Spanish ham and the Argus beef, etc. But there is a dark side in the meat industry as well, which is where animals are stuffed together. Animal welfare is a problem. High use of antibiotics, which is a problem because, of course, they create resistances that can impact on humans and human health. The density of farming often enables viruses to jump from animals into humans. A lot of the sort of recurrent viruses that we are suffering every year have an animal origin. That's not a nice thing either. And I think this more synthetic approach to creating meat can really tackle all these issues. In addition, of course, there's this CO2 problem that's associated with animals that you raise for meat production. And I do think that a technical solution here also can address this relatively large contribution to climate, to greenhouse gases. So I think overall, it provides an alternative for people that really like meat, and it can address some of these issues. But of course, it has to be accepted by the customer. And I think the main drivers will be ethic. Is it ethically sound? Is it safe? Does it taste well? And is it cheap enough? So those are the things that need to be solved for cultured meat to take off. Yeah, I think those are all super valid points. And I'll just add one comment in our deep dive on cultured meat. A good friend of ours who I'll mention at some point, she said that some of the traditional meat producers had said to her they couldn't wait for cultured meat to be on the market because then they could switch to doing the more organic, let's say, slow food type of cultivating of chickens or beef or pork to get away from this factory farming paradigm, which, as you say, has a huge impact on animal health animal welfare, animal health, and actually on human health too, because of the number of antibiotics that we feed those animals. One, I just want to go back to BitBio and the BitBio paradigm, but what's the biggest challenge that you have found when it comes to programming cells or reprogramming cells? Yes, traditionally, in order to reprogram cells, you obviously have to switch on a new program. And this is encoded in transcription factors. And the question is, how do you turn them on? And what scientists have done in the past is use vectors like viruses or transposon systems, RNA-mediated delivery methods to get these genes into the stem cells or other cell types and then activate them. But the problem here is the moment you have something like that, you're again in a stochastic paradigm. Does every cell get the right number of transcription factors? The dosing is an issue. The time that the message is actually turned on in a cell becomes an issue. And then if you take vectors that integrate into the DNA, then what can happen is these transcription factors, these genes can land in any stretch of the DNA. And that again can impact on the health of the cell or on the efficiency by which this program is turned on. 
So what the basis of BitBio is, which is this OptiOx technology, is we use so-called genomic safe harbor sites. These are specialized sites in the DNA that exist across species. And it's really difficult to understand what the evolutionary drive is, quite frankly. But what we know from mice and other laboratory animals where genomic safe harbors have been used for decades now is that they have two properties. They keep the cells safe, so you can put genetic information into that safe harbor without altering the physiology or the function of the cell. And the second thing that these genomic safe harbors provide is they also keep the program safe. So when you switch it on, it's not silence. It doesn't turn off automatically. It's very precise. It allows you to create safe edits in human cells that you can then leverage to program with consistency and with scale into the cell types that you're interested in. So that's really the biggest challenge. Beyond that, there are a lot of extra layer engineering issues that we solve. BitBio, this technology requires a lot of vertical integration. The different teams that we have, stem cell biologists, tissue-specific biologists, genetic engineers, synthetic biologists, these are just on the wet lab side. Then we have bioinformaticians, machine learning people. Um, they all have to come together to create a really process that allows you to generate new cell types from scratch, identify these programs. From there, of course, you'd have to take that into manufacturing. So you have manufacturing engineers and scientists, QC at quality insurance people, clinical grade engineering. You can see a lot of technologies that have to be integrated in the right way in order to be able to do what BitBio does. And it's not been done before. When all these people came together, they were divided by the same language. Most our language, obviously, is English. But the words that scientists use in different disciplines have different connotations. So what we found very early is that they were not able to send messages across that everyone understood. And that's really why, in addition to this vertical integration, we worked very hard to create a very specific culture in BitBio that is biased towards, I would say, the communicative nerd. So we are all very technical, but we like to exchange information and ideas. And that drive to help send the message across really creates, I think, an incredibly interesting culture where problems are openly discussed and science creates also the rigor that you require in order to build a machine like BitBio. About the communication nerds, you are among them. That's Carl and I. From my experience working at different companies, especially when it's going through change, whether it's a big pharmaceutical company or a startup, that the first thing people tackle is a taxonomy. Everyone needs to have a shared voice and a shared definitions. And that's something that even Carl and I, in the communication side, we work through with our clients as well. So I hear you on that. Of the human cell types that you guys have programmed, what has been the most challenging? Oh, the one cell type that was the root inspiration for BitBio. So the oligodendrocyte precursor cell that I wanted to crack in the academic lab, which I think would be a fantastic treatment for spinal cord injuries, turns out to be a very difficult cell type. So traditional differentiation, we talked about it takes six months, not quite. Now it's a bit quicker, but you never know how many cells you get. Probably because of some developmental reasons, these cells are somehow protected. During development, there's a switch that switches stem cells from producing neurons into glial cells. And I think this is part of the reason. The entire OptiOx technology has been able to tackle and enable the programming of OPCs. But what we then learned that the OPCs that we created were a bit late stage. They're called pre-myelinating oligodendrocytes. So what we learned there is that programming not only allows you to create cell types, we talk skin cell, muscle cells, actually it's much more subtle. You can create states of cells or sub-identities of cells. And we see this now in the neurons. We've got various different neurons, glutamatergic neurons, garbagic neurons, but we can also bias the subtype of an immune cell. What we're discovering is that this approach allows you to really engineer cells in a way that you would engineer, let's say, a car. I mean, the receptor, but maybe even literally a car where you have multiple specs that you put together and then you basically try and hit exactly the right specs. And it allows you to create cell types that don't exist either. So you can combine programs from different cell types. So really, we're tapping in this software called biology to create and recreate cell types that are useful. And the lineage is a particularly difficult one with so many shades and unknowns that I think we've gotten somewhere now. So I'm very happy with the first product that we launched at the moment. But there's still some work to do. We want to get to an earlier stage, a cell type that is a bit more flexible. 
The question I have is actually going to be a little bit different out of the blue question. This is what I'd like to throw at different guests of ours. The work that you're doing with stem cells, and you mentioned the Meetables had the slogan of one cell to feed everyone or one cell to heal everyone, which is what BitBio is doing. This idea of the stem cell being able to create these human cells. And we just had a guest on who works at Revive and Restore. And their whole mission is to de-extinct animals or save endangered species. I know that you already have a lot on your plate. You have a lot of things to work through, but what are your thoughts on using your technology to either de-extinct animals or help endangered species? First of all, I think this is a very, very interesting question. Can we bring animals back to maybe something that's becoming more and more pertinent, just thinking about all the things that are going on at the moment uh, in terms of climate change. Now, in order to de-extinct species, you have to create entire organisms. And what that means is you have to pivot back into the developmental biology because it's much less of an engineering thing where you create a particular cell type or you assemble cells into a particular, let's say, organoid system. Here, what you want to do is you want to grow back an animal. What our know-how allows you to do is, of course, help with the engineering part of the cells. There are companies that are trying to de-extinct mammoths. I think you know who I'm talking about. And what they do is they take an elephant and they reintroduce mammoth genes to make the elephant look more and more like a mammoth. That is not a mammoth from a genetic point of view, how they used to roam the world, but they are very similar. They probably are phenotypically the same once everything is engineered in the right way. But because you're now using stem cells in the much more traditional sense to grow an organism, I'm not sure what the benefits would be using our OptioX technology. That said, of course, we have experience across different species. We're very experienced in terms of genetic engineering and things like that. So we could help, certainly, but it's not the focus of the company. A company has to have a straight focus and a purpose. I'm very excited about what's going on there. I'm not sure whether BitBio would be in the position to really make a difference. There. We'll have to introduce you just to meet them because I know they're actually having specifically a stem cell like meeting of minds to help with some of this stuff. Maybe you can provide a morsel of insight or a lot of insight, I'm sure, to help them with their own efforts. My scientists would be certainly interested in hearing what's going on on that front. Two-minute overview of ClockBio because we didn't really talk about that as much. So ClockBio is really built on the question what the aging program is, or actually, to be precise, what are the rejuvenation programs? The premise that seems to be now holding true is that aging is an epigenetically controlled program. Epigenetic noise impacts on the ability of cells to keep gene expression tight. The noise wears down the health of a cell. And that's really what the aging program seems to be. Our biology actually has the ability to maintain youth this really a dynamic state where the influence of the environment, which causes entropy, can be buffered. And this is not only human cells can do that. Well, one particular human cell is called the pluripotent stem cell can do that. But actually, some species don't age because they can actually buffer this entropy over you know, a prolonged period of time. So hydra, for example, doesn't age. There are species where medusa, which is a jellyfish, which cycles between old and young ages. In human or mammalian or any species also needs to maintain what you could call ground age zero when it comes to the next generation propagation. Because if you think about it, if the stem cells at the origin of life start to age, you would inherit age. And at some point in time, probably the species will go extinct. So what happens in biology really is that at the early stage when the gametes fuse, the age clock is reset to ground zero. Actually, egg cells age a little bit, sperm ages a little bit. When they fuse, aging is reset to ground zero just to ensure that we don't inherit age, okay? So the biology is there. We can tap into that biology by Yamanaka reprogramming, which is the conversion of, for example, skin cells back into embryonic stem cells. During that process, and there's some papers out there that have taken cells from 100-year-olds 
and reset the clock to ground age zero and also reverse them back to a stem cell. So what I'm trying to say here is in our DNA, there are programs that allow you to rejuvenate. And that's really the basis of many, many of these aging companies. You've seen huge investments in the last few years around that space. In particular, a process called partial reprogramming. And leaders in that field are Wolf Reich, David Sinclair, of course, uh, Giancarlo Belmonte, etc. Incredible scientists. The problem with that is partial reprogramming, which is one part of Yamanaka reprogramming, is conflated. Age reversal happening, and at the same time, there's a change in cell type. So it's a very complex paradigm. And it's quite difficult, actually, to figure out the genes that are responsible for the age reversal, the repair of the damage from the the genes that are actually able to go from a skin cell back to a stem cell, which is an identity change. We toiled with the idea whether we can somehow shortcut this. Is there a better paradigm that allows us to read out rejuvenation programs without that self-fate choice? And here's the paradigm. Because youth is an active state where repair processes take place to compensate for the entropy, we thought we could override the damage in a stem cell. So stem cells can compensate the naturally occurring entropy, but if you really push them very hard with an artificial aging intervention, they should also age. And that's what we found. The stem cell starts to age. But the moment you take away that pressure, it rejuvenates again. Now you have a single cell that goes from aged to non-aged without changing its identity. And what allows you to do that is, that was our hypothesis, read out the rejuvenation biology in one big go using CRISPR screening, for example. And what ClockBio has been able to do now is essentially validate this. So we have the model, we've artificially aged the stem cells, we've found hits. We took those hits. We took, so these are targets, obviously. Then we used drugs that actually can interact with these targets. And then we demonstrated that you can restore, for example, mitochondrial health in aged brain cells. It's really a target discovery play that allows you to rapidly figure out what the rejuvenation programs are in our DNA, and then create most likely combinatorial treatments to slow or maybe reset the aging program. But also because many of the diseases that we're facing as humans are degenerative. You can tailor individual repair paradigms to treat certain degenerative conditions. It's not all about rejuvenation, which is of course a nice thing, but it's really also about treating age-related conditions. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. But that's really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole longevity movement. If you want to stretch that out a bit and think about where that could go in the future. And that's yes. a whole other podcast in itself, too. I mean, we need to bring you back on just to talk about Clock Bio. Maybe some of your colleagues. I love that. Thank you again for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. I hope we can sort of get together when I'm traveling to the U.S. quite a bit at the moment. So love to touch. Yeah, yeah let us know when you're in New York. York. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Iram, what did you think of that interview? Mark Cotter is a wealth of information. He is doing a lot of fundamental science that can spin out all these different companies, which I find very, very impressive. He's very personable. He was actually very funny. He was cracking jokes. He's a great person and a great leader. And I think it's wonderful to hear his take on the fundamental technologies that he's been exploring and the products that are going to be coming from research that him and his team are doing. Yeah, I mean, I think what they're building is extremely valuable. Every once in a while, we do come across companies where like, you're easily a billion dollar company if you guys can pull this off. Mark and his company are one of the few that we can say that about. And just to reiterate how valuable biotechnology can be on the healthcare side, something that was in the news just last week was that Novo Nordisk became the European Union's most valuable technology company. So they basically knocked out ASML which is a chip manufacturer and SAP knocked them off the top tech list in Europe. And with the sale of their Ozembic and now Wegovi, they are now not only the most valuable company in Denmark, but the most valuable company in the EU. So it's very exciting. And it's exciting to just know that's the kind of impact biotechnology can have. Going back to what we talked about earlier, Iran, with MDSS, you had mentioned to me something about AI in healthcare. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For MDSS, the Merck Digital Sciences Studio, again, amazing companies coming out of that. 
everyone is using AI in some fashion. And I like to call it more like machine learning or neural nets. I mean, you know, when you start going deep into it and you learn about how a lot of the technologies and people that are building these algorithms, they start differentiating it a bit more. But this generative AI, we'll just use that as the mainstream term. A lot of that's happening in these companies. It's table stakes now that we say to a lot of the companies that we meet when they're asking us about their messaging, we'd really try to coach them into not using the term AI. AI because it is, again, table stakes now, just like saying, oh, we have an internet podcast. No, we just have a podcast. But I think it's fascinating to see all these things being built. I'm just waiting for them to start being used by doctors in the field. And something I wanted to share with our listeners, because I was talking to you about it and like, we have to talk about this on the podcast. So I went to a doctor here in Park Slope in Brooklyn. It's a very affluent neighborhood. And when I went to the doctor, I had to wait, which is not that great now that we live in a world of telehealth, but no, it's fine. So I had to wait. That's not the big thing. The big news was I was asking her a question. It's a very simple question about when do we need to get certain vaccines by, which you think a doctor that's a primary care doctor would know. And she's like, oh, I don't know. Let me check. And she just opens her laptop, goes on Google and just asks for it. And I was like, okay, I could have done that. And it's like a lot of the questions she was just asking Google, which again, Google isn't the purveyor of the best healthcare knowledge, although we all go to Dr. Google, but you know, maybe it'll get there. But right now it's searching the most popular post versus the most accurate, up-to-date, what just came off the press, what just came out of the lab's data. They're not looking at that recent data, looking at the popular data. And I was like, oh, there definitely needs to be more AI. If there was a very specific clinical assistant, the term that people are using when it comes to leveraging generative AI in healthcare, it's a clinical assisted program or clinical assisted platform. I was just found that to be like, oh. And then there was like a lot of other things that happened where I'm like, all right, maybe I just need a better doctor that is using some of the latest and greatest tools. And like, it just got me thinking about like healthcare in general. And one of the things I wanted to bring up is that we actually had a listener call in and share their perspective on OxyContin because we were talking about the show Painkillers on Netflix, which pretty much unveiled what was going on at Purdue Pharmaceuticals and how OxyContin came into the market very aggressively without a lot of very strict regulations, then created this whole epidemic of overdosing and addiction. And kind of the flip side that our listener was sharing, and you'll hear from the listener, is that the OxyContin is there. It does help people that are in a lot of pain. You know, if they get in an accident and they break legs and bones, that it is a great reliever of pain. But that there is nothing really after that that can step down because the next thing that is prescribed is like 600 milligrams of Tylenol or acetaminophen, which is very problematic to the body because it can cause stomach bleeding. So then they're prescribed another medicine for that. There needs to be something else. So let's take a second to hear the listener's response. Hi, I want to call and give my take on a recent episode that I listened to. My son actually was in a really bad car accident recently. He's 22. And one of the things that was prescribed to him was painkillers, right? Which was oxy. So they gave it to him throughout the three weeks that he was in the hospital. Then as he came home, they gave him like six more or something. And then they suddenly stopped. I am actually all about natural healing and natural medicine. But for me, what made me really angry was that there was no replacement. Of course, I didn't want him to have oxy. And of course, I didn't want him to be addicted to but what was the replacement? Is it just Tylenol as he's screaming in pain throughout the night? And he would ask for the athlete. He would say, mom, that helped me. I'm not addicted. How do you handle that? It's a horrifying experience. First of all, to see your loved one go through an accident and then be prescribed something that is helping him. It's helping him relax. It's helping him move forward. It's helping him just be in the moment and realize what's going on because everything is happening so fast. But then suddenly to stop it and not even give an explanation or anything. And then the replacement of that, which was duloxetine, duloxetine is also has been actually used for depression. So we put in some sort of like catatonic state. So it's a really dark road. Like, I don't know how the system can be better because in the end, the family has to deal with it. I have to deal with him screaming in the middle of the night. The Tylenol is not helping. The ibuprofen is not helping. The dilapidating, the omeprazole, the cyclobenzene, every single thing that they have given to replace the oxy just making things worse. 
that's my take on this. Maybe someone out there who's hearing your podcast, because this is a podcast about Grow Everything. I wonder if somebody's out there growing painkillers that are effective, yet without the side effects towards being addictive. Um, if there's somebody out there doing that, that would be an awesome thing. Thank you so much, guys, for bringing it to our attention. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you for your podcast. I listen to it. I'm an advisor at a college. I have my students listen to it as well, especially the ones that are in biology and biotech. It's a good point. I think that we need to think about it. I mean, she brought up, could there be an alternative where we just grow a plant and it's sustainable and it releases pain? I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was weed. I mean, people take that Heroin. Where do you grow that? Opium. Yeah. Yeah, opium. Is opium a plant addictive? Because there's something uh, that they grow brought... poppies and you make the heroin from the poppies. Yeah. But there's a point that they brought up in the show and we talked about elsewhere. I heard this on the Pivot podcast, actually, because Kara Swisher's brother is a doctor. They talk about addiction where there's the physical addiction and the psychological addiction. Oxy having a physical addiction, that there is a physical response and it's not a psychological thing where there's people that are addicted and it's a psychological that they, they, they could be addicted to anything. They can be addicted to food. They can be addicted to things that don't have physical addiction. The fine line between what was actually happening in the painkillers show is that Purdue was saying, oh, these are junkies that are ODing on Oxys. It's just because they're naturally addicted because that's just them. They're just addictive personalities. It's not our drug where in fact it was a drug that was addictive physically. So good point. Thank you so much to our listener for calling in. We encourage you guys to call more often for lots of reasons, not only to respond to what we're talking about here on the podcast, any news that you might find, any interest you might have in events that are coming up. Carl, we have a special event coming up you wanted to share. Yeah, so if you're in New York City on uh, Friday, September 15th, GenSpace will be holding its 15th anniversary birthday bash. And we will be there. I'm one of the co-hosts. It's taking place in Dumbo, which is down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass at Boston Consulting Group's offices. It's a spectacular space. If you're interested and you want to attend, I do have a discount code. So just send us an email or call us on the Grow Everything hotline. And I'll be happy to follow up with you and give you the discount codes. You can get a good price. It's a good price. It's a good cause. You should attend regardless of the discount code, but it just is kind of a icing on the cake. And if you don't know, we do have a hotline, as Iram mentioned, and the number for that is 804-505-5553. That's 804-505-5553. So hopefully we'll see some of our listeners at the GenSpace birthday bash on September 15th. Yeah, great cause for science education in the community, making it available to all. You will just discover so many great people that come to GenSpace, which Carl and I met there. I always mention that. And remember to save our hotline to your contacts. The number is in the show notes. So click, 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 get into your contacts and talk to us. This is why we created the podcast. We want to talk to you people. So let's do it. All right. Well, I think that's the pod. Yep. All right, guys. Enjoy the week and we will talk to you next week. Talk to you later. 